For those of you keeping track, we're in 1 Samuel. We're at chapter 17 now, and I'm going to try to do one of those things where I go through 53 verses in one go. I'm moderately confident in the fact that most people know this story of David and Goliath, so I may skip a few details, uh, especially the ones they repeat ad nauseum. Sorry, I mean a bunch. <laughs> How many times you got to describe the same armor, right? This is why we don't understand the Word of God. They, re- like they, they mention the same thing like five times. It's always remarkable to me. So we're going to try to um, narrow the story down to the really uh, specific details so that when you go from here and, you, and hopefully you go home and you read this story in more detail, what you will do is, is hopefully notice things that you hadn't noticed before. What I want to do is essentially give us a key to understanding it. This is a story that is well known, David and Goliath. So before we open the word of God, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We know, Lord, that it is powerful, that it is full of the deep things of God that are very difficult to understand and comprehend, especially, Lord, uh, the, more use we are, uh, the more use we get to certain stories, the more likely we are to misunderstand them and, and to, um, to not un, uh, grasp exactly what you're trying to teach us. We pray, Lord, that as you open this story to us now, this morning, that we would understand both David and his ministry to Israel and exactly what it was all about. We pray that you would teach us, Lord God, how it is that Goliaths are overcome, how they are destroyed. We, we pray, Lord, that you give us faith. We pray that you would give us, therefore, because of that faith, courage and zeal and hope. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, this is a story that many people, even if they aren't Christians, know very well. Many people think that David's defeat of Goliath is a story about personal courage in the face of overwhelming odds. If you just go out and you take on the enemy just like David, you will overcome, right? It's a, it's a story about the human spirit. David is perceived to be the archetypal underdog, a sort of Old Testament Rocky Balboa standing up to an arrogant, powerful blowhard, right? If you've, if you've seen Rocky, you've read the story, you've seen there's a lot of parallels here. David is considered self-confident, he's considered independent, he's considered brave, he's going out to fight for what he thinks is right. He's going to rely on his own strength, he's going to pull himself up by his bootstraps. (laughs) And he's not going to conform to conventional tactics. The popular moral of the story is this, you get out there and you face your giant because courage always comes out on top. You can do it. This is how I've always understood the story. This is how the story has always been told to me. But that is not at all what it's about. It's true that David was courageous, but we have to understand that courage, is an, is, though it is an essential and glorious virtue, comes from outside of us. The source of our courage is not our own heart. The source of our courage is not our strength. As many of us know, our strength will vanish in an instant. And if our courage depends upon our strength and our strength leaves us, what happens to our courage? It goes away. Our courage has to be based on something greater and stronger than ourselves, something outside of ourselves. David's heroism is not like Achilles or Odysseus. David did not fight because his honor had in any way been violated. He fights because God's honor has been violated. Now, I think that this particular portion of the story is very, very very difficult for post-resurrection Christians to understand. Because as I've said time and time again, we want to make our ethics as simple as Calvary. Jesus went up on the cross and he just took it. He took it on the mouth. 
They nailed him up there, and he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't stop anyone. He just took it. And we think that that is what we are called to do in every and all circumstances. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not (laughs) what we are to do in all circumstances. The Christian life is more like David's. It's more like David's. We are confronted by those who hate God, who hate God's people, and we are to defy them. We are to stand up to them and say, you don't know what you're talking about, and if you're not careful, you're going to end up six feet under. And that flies in the face of a great deal of evangelical niceness. This is not a story about human courage and effort overcoming insurmountable odds as if we are Appalachian State feeding Michigan in an NCAA football game. Right? That's always. You turn on football in the fall and you're like, oh, look at scrappy little Appalachian State taking on Michigan. And and that's what they've reduced the story to, a football game. (laughs) Some form of the Hebrew word harep, meaning to reproach, to defy, to mock, to deride, appears six times throughout the story. In verse 10, in verse 25, twice in 26, 36, and 45. And that is what the story is about. Are you being defied? Is God's law, is God's word, is God's honor being defied? And are you standing up and defying those who are defying him? Goliath is not merely the big thug from Philistia, a blabbering (laughs) numbskull, right, knuckle-dragger, who's just out there deriding God. He, He represents the forces of darkness in this world who hate your God and hate you. David responds because of his faithfulness to God, and his faith in God is his primary weapon. There, we're going to read a lot about tactics, what, what David actually does. You know, it's one of those stories, I'll be honest. If anyone in the Old Testament is going to boast about being really smart and, and clever and crafty and outwitting the enemy, I would actually say David should do it. If, you're, if you read this story and you understand what he's doing, he ought to be boasting in himself. I wouldn't be surprised if he did, but he doesn't. And that is the lesson. That is the lesson. He is going out and he is fighting on, the, on behalf of God's honor. And, he, and his primary weapon all along is not his own wisdom, even though it is great. It's not his own strength, even though it is great. It is not his weapons, even though they are great. What is great about David is the greatness of his God. His primary weapon is the Lord. And when you fight and your primary weapon is the Lord, do you think you are going to lose? Now, why is it then that we're losing? <laughs> Maybe it's because our primary weapon is not the Lord. Now, did you ever know, did you know that your Lord is a weapon? He's a weaponized God. That's what he's turned himself into. When he hurled himself at death and defeated it, when he chopped off, when he crushed the head of Satan and defeated our enemies, what we realize is that our God is a weapon. Now, who do you fight with such a weapon? What do you fight with such a weapon? How do you fight with such a weapon? No doubt, encouraged by Saul's mental decline and his obvious vulnerability, we find that Philistia has ventured deep into Israel, undoing all the gains that Samuel had uh, gotten for himself. Samuel fought very hard. Samuel was very faithful. He had gained a great deal of territory for Israel, and it is all undone because Saul is crying. Saul is weeping. Saul needs someone to play the guitar for him because he's so depressed he can't do his responsibility, which is defend the Lord's kingdom. What you see is that the sharp decline in Saul is, is the reason that opens the door for David to come on the scene and do what he's going to do. 
Now, if you look at the, if you look at the start of the story here, it says in verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. You go down to verse 2, it says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and, dropped and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So what you have are two in this, this valley where there's a dry riverbed. On either side are these two armies facing one another. Separating the two camps geographically is a dry riverbed, but separating the Israelites from the Philistines psychologically is a chasm of fear. And, and this, how many times does Israel have to win because God fights for her, for her to realize that no one can stand against her? Didn't we just hear about the Amalekites? Didn't we just hear about Israel whooping the Amalekites up, down, and left, and right? Didn't we just hear about the fact that uh, a gag was hacked to pieces by the prophet of God. And here's Israel standing on a cliff, looking out at the Philistines, and they're full of fear. Why? Because they've taken their eyes off of God. That is why. They are no longer looking at the Lord. They're looking at the giant man standing out there in the middle of the field. This is what we read. This is why they're full of fear. This is why they're cowering. This is who they think is bigger than their God. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. This is a big fellow. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The Israelite army cowers before Goliath, just as the Israelites in the wilderness were afraid of the giants that lived in the land back in Numbers 13. Do you remember? They came, Israel originally came to the land. They sent spies. The spies came back and were like, dude, the land is full of bias. It's awful. And a whole bunch of Israel said, oh, well, we can't possibly win now because they're huge. And, and that, I mean, in, in that regard, at least Israel was cowering in front of a nation of giants. This is one giant. They see one giant, and just like their fearful ancestors, they are afraid of him. They see him, and they think nothing is bigger than this. Nothing is scarier than this. The Anakim, they're called. They were giants. They were conquered by Joshua and relocated to Gaza and Gath and Ashdod, three Philistine cities, according to the book of Joshua. Joshua defeated the giants. He kicked them out of the land. He said, hey, you know where you belong is out there with the Philistines. Goliath descends from the Anakim that Joshua had conquered. Now, faced with the giant from Gath, Israel needs another Joshua to go out and defend them. They need another Joshua. They need a new savior. Saul, of course, had been selected as king to fight giants. Remember, he's huge. He himself is a giant. So why, right? (laughs) 
So here's Saul. He knows who his God is. He knows that he is the king of God's people. He knows what God does to those who deride Israel. He is huge himself, and yet he is leading the dismay. And, and where the heart of a king goes, so goes a kingdom. Now, Goliath's armor, wearing, weighing 126 pounds, I suppose you need that much armor if you're nine feet tall, was made of hundreds of metal scales attached with thread to leather. These scales indicate that Goliath is a giant snake. There is a dragon in the land. Now, once again, there's a serpent in the garden land of Israel, just as there had been in 1 Samuel 11, when Nahash, whose name means serpent, was attacking Israel under Saul. And what did Saul do to the snake then? What's changed? Right? Not only is Saul huge, not only is he the king of Israel, not only he's been successful in battle, his son's pretty awesome in battle, I might add, and, and he's cowering because why? Because the Spirit of God left him. The Spirit of God had departed from him, and all of that other stuff that had happened no longer was applicable to Saul. He is as afraid of snakes as any other man. He's afraid of dragons just like any other man. Israel needs not only a Joshua but a true seed of the woman who can crush serpents' heads. That's what Israel needs. That's what Israel always needs. If you leave Israel too long to herself, what what will she do? She would say, all Israel to your tents. It's too scary. It's too frightful. The dragon is too big. The giant is too big. We have to get out of here. What the people of God consistently need, always, is the gospel preached to them. They need the gospel of Yahweh proclaimed to them again. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Isaiah 51.7, listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of a man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit in, on scorpions, Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And what happens to rebellious houses? The reader, that's you, was just told in 1 Samuel 16, 7, this important truth. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Now, what, what is Israel looking at? They say, oh, that, that is a wicked and evil man who hates God. His heart is black, and he is going to be pushing up daisies soon enough. Let's go get him. Or do they see his appearance, and that's all they see? Wow, look at the size of that spear. Whew, look at all those scales. He's giant. He's huge. There's no way we could defeat him. They see him, and what they, what, what they do is they, are, they put all of their hope, all of their faith, all of their understanding, all of their theology is based on what they can see. Not on the reality, not on who they are, not on who God is. They've totally forgotten him. All they can see is Goliath. Now, does that sound familiar to you? It does, doesn't it? 
I know, Molly has a distressed look on her face. I'm with you, sister. It's distressing. It sounds like some people I know. We are told to not look on appearances. We're told not to look on appearances when we're choosing leaders. We're told not to look on appearances when we're looking at enemies. Confident in the superiority of his equipment, as well as in his great natural strength, the giant defies Israel, and Israel, forgetting their God, looking only at their circumstances, cowers in fear. Goliath is so certain of winning the fight, in fact, that he commits his fellow countrymen to slavery if he fails. Now, we know, because we know what happens, that this turns out to be a lie. He's lying to them, do, right? Because they are going to lose. Now, do the Philistines come and say, well, our hero said that we would turn ourselves over as slaves, and so here we are to serve you, the house of Israel. No, he's lying to them. And their fear, in their fear, they don't understand who they are fighting. They don't understand what is being said to them. The, the, the fear and the lies are the weapons of the enemy. There's nothing new under the sun. And Israel cowers. Israel hides. Israel goes back to her tents, and nobody is ready to fight. Everyone has forgotten their Lord. Now, who is going to, to deliver Israel from this body of death? Now, we skip down to verse 15, and we read this. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And David rose early in the morning, it says in verse 20, and left the sheep of the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Though David had earlier been called a warrior, he was in fact a courtier in the house of Saul. He was denied a role in Saul's army, and what this does is it tells us how old he is. Because everyone who is older than 20, according to Numbers, chapter 1, verse 45, anyone older than 20 is supposed to be in the army. So he's not in the army. So this tells us how young he is. He's not even 20 years old. David is playing a supporting role. He's going back and forth between Saul and short-term stints. It's obvious that he needs to do this. His three brothers are serving in the army. Who's going to help his father with his flock? He doesn't yet have to serve, and so he's the one going back and forth, taking care of both his brothers in the field and his father's sheep at home. Now, Jesse's instructions to his son are almost verbatim the instructions that Jacob gave to, to Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, and it's an important detail. Joseph, a younger brother chosen by God to be preeminent over his brothers, was mistreated and sold into slavery, we remember. And David receives similar treatment from his brother Eliab. Eliab is going to mock David. It's, he's going to mock David's small um, flock out in the wilderness. Eliab can't see that the small flock that David has been tending is what has prepared him for this moment. Eliab is just as spiritually blind as Saul, just as spiritually blind as the rest of Israel. This is why in the previous chapter God said, don't look at him, right? It's again the appearances part. Don't look at appearances. Eliab, all he sees is, is, is appearances. 
He says, David, your heart is wicked. David, you have a tiny flock. David, you belong out in the wilderness. What are you doing here? Shut your mouth and go back. He, he says that he has an evil heart. Now, why is Eliab saying this to him? And, and right, he has no idea who David really is. Just like Joseph was maligned by his brothers and abused by his brothers and, and stabbed in the back by his brothers, just like Jesus will be rejected by his brothers and sisters, he will be rejected too by the house of Israel. Because the house of Israel is distracted by appearances, right? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. David, you're tiny. David, you're young. Go back to your sheep. You stink anyway. And this is the man who's about to deliver the entire nation. And he's equipped to do so because of that tiny flock. Right? We, we see tiny churches, we see tiny families, we see tininess, and we think nothing good is ever coming out of this. But the tiny flock that he was tending in the, in the wilderness is the reason he's able to kill a giant. We don't like small things. We don't like things out on the edges of society. We don't like shepherds. They stink. They weren't allowed in society, by the way, because they smelled funny. They usually lived off in their own communities together. We are like Eliab, aren't we? Here is the true son of Israel. Here is their deliverer. And they, and they deride him. Oh, you know, David, what are you up to, man? I know you. I know your heart, you black-hearted man. What are you, going to, what are you up to? And Eliab, just like Israel, just like Israel in our own day, cannot discern the difference between the saviors of Israel, the deliverers of Israel, and, and everybody else. More importantly, the parallels with Joseph foreshadow David's future. Just as Joseph was faithful and patient until the Lord exalted him, so David will have to show the same patience. Now, Goliath has come out. Goliath has opened his mouth. And the wrong Israelite has heard him. It's been pretty easy sailing up to this point. Forty days is a long time. Here they are, Israel, just like 40 years in the wilderness. Forty days they stand there listening to this man come out in the morning and the evening. At the same time the sacrifices are being offered, I might add, deriding the people of God. He's probably feeling pretty good about himself. Forty days is a long run. And then all of a sudden there's a scrappy, smelly little man standing there in the back who's like, what is this that I am hearing now? And this is, this is then David's response in verse 24. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. And he will give his daughter and make his, father, uh, his daughter as a bride and give his father's house free, uh, freedom in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away? I like it here, David. David would kill this guy anyway, but why not make a profit while, while you can at the same time? I, li I like it. It's very entrepreneurial of him. I'm sure that Saul could have got him for a lot less. <laughs> and I think this is partially why the brother's like, okay, I know what you're up to. Yeah, he is up to that, because why not, right? A worker's worth his wages. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so that, so that it shall be done to them 
I'm sorry, so shall be done to the, any man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. David is indignant that anyone, no matter how powerful, no matter how big, no matter how shiny in all their armor, would insult the people of the living God. He's horrified by such a thing. Horrified. Who is this uncircumcised Gentile? Who is this man who does not know God? Who is this man with a dark heart? Who is this man who serves dead gods? No gods. Gods that don't even exist. Who are you? Why are you guys letting this man speak this way to you? Don't you have a living God? Don't you have a tribe who belongs in the household of God? David realizes in this moment they have completely forgotten who they are. Not only does the Philistine need to be reminded of it, Israel needs to be reminded of whose household they are. You are the household of a king. Not a king, the king. Act like it. Act like it. Many of us should be ashamed of ourselves. Ashamed of ourselves. David hears this threefold prize, and, he, and this is what I like. He, he'll take on Goliath. That's the prize all by itself. But if you throw in a few other perks, I think he's down for the plan. I get a wife, which brings me to the household of the king. Sounds good. My people get freedom, which means they don't have to serve and pay the taxes now. Sounds even better. Now, what we see here are David's first recorded words. And what are David's first recorded words in, in 1 Samuel? They are ones of defiance. They are ones where he's standing up and he is deriding the people of God for being cowards. These are the first recorded words of David. This is the man who has a heart after God. To this point, the narrative has been absolutely godless. Men in their own strength, cowering in fear and disobedience, keeping their eyes on their circumstances and not their God. And David comes on the scene and injects God into the episode. Doesn't having a living God make a difference? If God is ident so identified with Israel, is he indifferent towards such slurs on his reputation? Right? Does God care that people deride him? Does God care that people belittle him and his people? I, we, we have confused the meekness of Jesus Christ for indifference in God. Just because Jesus was meek, just because he did not deride those who derided him, does not mean that God does not care when he and his people are maligned. We don't know our God. Is the living God going to allow an uncircumcised Philistine to trample his name? Israel thought the Philistine invulnerable. For David, he was only uncircumcised, an unbeliever. Now, I can hear many people in our own days, oh, David, come on, he doesn't know what spirit he's of. David, calm down, buddy. That's not a very nice thing to say. You've got to worry about your witness. What are your brothers going to think if you're talking this way? What, what is the rest of Israel going to think you're talking this way? Don't, right? God doesn't care. God's very meek. You should be more meek like him. Could you imagine what we would tell David if we were there with him? And David would be like, get behind me, Satan. I got work to do. David sees and hears, and he knows that Goliath knows exactly what spirit he is of. It's not like David is wandering around and, and Philistia think, right, and just comes upon some poor unbeliever and starts deriding the man for no reason. This is a person standing in defiance of God's people, in defiance of God's name, and David won't have it. He won't have it. He reminds Israel, Yahweh is not dead. 
Yahweh is not deaf. Yahweh is not disinterested. Yahweh is not impotent. David does not remain silent in the face of Goliath's taunts and reviling. He does not cower. He does not hide. He does not wring his hands. He, stre- he assesses the situation as if God were actually God. Is he nice? No. Is he polite? No. Is he worried that people might misunderstand exactly what his motivations are? No. Why? He's not looking at people at all. He doesn't see the people. He doesn't care about the people. What he cares about is the honor of God. What he cares about is obedience to God. What he cares about is faithfulness to the living God. Do you think he, right? Do you think he's, he believes he's absolutely invincible? No way. Does he care? No. Does he care that his brother, what his brother says? No. He doesn't care how impolite he sounds. He doesn't care about how proud he sounds because what's at stake is bigger than himself, bigger than the nation of Israel, bigger than the Philistines, bigger than human history. It's about the living God and his reputation. Well, now David's in trouble because someone who heard him went and told Saul. (laughs) When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you, you are not able. He looks him over, he sees only the externals, and he says, yeah, you're not going to do that. You go down to verse 34. But David said, to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. <laughs> yeah, how hard you got to punch a bear to kill it. I'm just, that's pretty hard. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has denied or defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's way of thinking, the uncircumcised Philistine has reduced himself to the level of a mere brute animal. Because he defied the armies of the living God, he's nothing but just an animal. He's a beast running loose in the field. Fighting Goliath is just another fight with a wild beast. The Lord delivered David from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear, and he would deliver him from the hand of the Philistine too. What's different? To David, what's the difference? There's no difference. Right? How many of us think a, an, a lion is something we're going to just go out and scrap with in the backyard? Right? I know people who go hunting. They go hunting, and, and you know what they don't do is just wander around looking for the bear so they can wrestle it. They take guns, and then they take extra guns, and then they make sure their friends have extra guns because it's a bear, for goodness sakes. So if you've already whooped a bear and you've already whooped a lion, what's one more beast? It's a snake in the garden. David's like, what's up? I just stomp on his head. Haven't you guys read Genesis? David is the new Adam that Israel had been waiting for, the beast master, taking dominion over bears and lions and now a serpent. David remembered that he comes from a nation of giant killers. He remembers who he is. He remembers whose tribe he's in. The fact that Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days was analogous to Israel's wilderness experience. And so now what we see is that David really is the greater Joshua. He has come to slay dragons. He's come to slay giants. He's come to free them from their 40 days of being trapped 
in fear. Now, what we see here is Saul. What has he got? He has not much left at this stage. We can see exactly why Israel is in the position it's in. He, uh, Saul offers David his strategy of fighting Israel's enemies. He, he tries to give him his armor. Here, little guy, put on my armor. Well, Saul's huge. How well is this going to work? And Saul doesn't know what else to do. He doesn't want to hear his line. He just says, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my armor because without that, you'll probably die. And, and David wants none of that. He's like, I don't need that stuff. I didn't have that when I killed a bear. I didn't have that when I killed a lion. I don't need it to stomp on the head of a snake. David's idealism and determination are exceeded only by his faith in the Lord. It was not unusual for a lion or bear to make off with his sheep, and he dealt with it every single time. He uses the verb nakah to strike or strike down three times in two verses. He is making an important point to Saul. Don't say that I have no experience in war. Striking down enemies is part of my job. It's just that they are usually ferocious mammals rather than some big, giant, arrogant giant. In some sense, Goliath might be easier for him to kill. This Philistine has consigned himself to the lion and bear heap, and when he sees Goliath, all he sees is one more head to mount in his hunting lodge. Right? You go in there and you're like, oh, look, at it. there's a lion's head and there's a bear's head and there's Goliath's head mounted on the wall. David does not ascribe his success to his luck or skill or audacity. Think about it. He didn't say, listen, I was able to you know, fight the lion so well that I gained all this natural strength. I, 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 it, he doesn't say, well, I've, I've fought snakes before and they've bit me. I'm now I'm, I'm immune to their poison. He, he doesn't give anything away about his own wisdom, his own strength, nothing. He says, the Lord delivered me then, thus the Lord will deliver me now. Looking back in faith enables him to look forward in faith that what Yahweh did in the wilderness of Judah, he will do in the valley of Elah. This is instructive for us all. Faith is sustained in the present as it's focused on Yahweh's provision in the past. The rich history of God's past faithfulness nurtures faith in our current dilemma. Yahweh delivered me then and there, and if he handled that, isn't he adequate for this? Right? And when we hear this, how simple is that? How simple is that? Now, all of you in your own minds, think back to when the Lord, when you were there facing a giant, and you did not know what was going to, how it was going to, what was going to happen, and he delivered you. Now, if you could rest, right? Remember how you felt right afterwards when he delivered you? You're like, well, nothing's going to stop him. Nothing could stop him. Then we walk on down the road. We come to something big, scary. Totally forgotten what's happened. We think, oh, no. Oh, no. Keeping our eyes on him, on the Lord. A well-aimed faith. One that is aimed at the Lord. One eyes on the Lord. This is how we overcome whatever stands in our way. Even death. <laughs> death is just like that speed bump on our way to Jesus. The king, disarmed by David's impressive presentation, decides to make the greatest military gamble of his career. Okay, kid, I'm sending you in. Go out there and get the winning shot. We have no other hope besides you, small child who's not even old enough to serve in the military. But I suppose you've killed some things before, so go try to kill him. This is what we find happens. <clears throat> this part I really like. Verse 38. Saul clothed David with his armor. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with this, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took, 
his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And when the Philistine, it says in verse 42, looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Yes. (laughs) It's a rhetorical question. Yes, you are. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David, mild and meek, went down and was slaughtered. Oh? Oh, no, that's the crossway version of the book. I apologize. (laughs) Then David said to the Philistine, You, come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword, not with spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. There could hardly have been a greater contrast between the two. One, heavily armored, all this protective gear, massive, well-experienced. Uh, well and here's David, who looks entirely vulnerable, so easy to defeat, that Goliath takes it as an insult. This is what you've got, Israel? This is what you've got, this kid. Now, as a warrior, I'm sure that Goliath is actually personally offended by this, right? Because nobody likes punching below their weight. David's weapons, the sticks and the stones, were not products of human artifice. Rather, they were shaped by God. Think about this for a second. As such, the author may have included these details as a counterpoint to what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19 through 20. Back there, we read this. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. The Philistines feared and relied on weapons pulled from human forges. But David would conquer them with divinely manufactured weapons laying in an open field. David sees the enemies of God and he says, I don't need a forge. I don't need steel. Right? He looks around and he says, well, here's a stick and here's a rock. I guess I'm good. The Lord has provided me with these weapons. Then Goliath cursed David by his gods. Now, the author's use of the term cursed here is theologically important. Readers knowledgeable of the Torah would know that by cursing the son of Abraham, Goliath is bringing down the Lord's curse on himself. Remember from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth should be blessed. And I think that we truly need to understand what this means. Those who malign us, those who curse us, they are going to fall into the hands of the living God. And for, for, for their sake, I'm terrified for them. Because God cares about what happens to us. 
All Goliath is doing is making it worse and worse and worse for himself. And somebody ought to stand up and at least tell him, listen, man, you are on the road to perdition. You are on the road to a dirt nap from which you will not wake. There is a death worse than physical death, Goliath. And you're, you're already on that road. And if you double down by cursing me, it's only going to get worse for you. We remember from the Amalekites, this is why God had them destroy the Amalekites, because the Amalekites had maligned the people of God when they came out of the Exodus. And God did not forget. It took him 400 years, but he didn't forget. Do you think he's going to forget Goliath? Do you think God in heaven is going to say, well, he didn't know what spirit he was of, the poor man? David's greatest military resource is Yahweh. Not himself, not his own wisdom, not his own courage or strength. His greatest weapon is a well-aimed faith. I love it. He goes down, he gets five stones. How many do you need? Right? He thought he at least needed five. <laughs> Goliath is a big fella. He didn't, even, right? he didn't even have the audacity to go down and just pick up one. God's ways of defeating our enemies are even greater than we can imagine. And then here is the outcome of this story. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that the champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell away from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. <laughs> They'd been there for 40 days. All right, there's all the breakfast items still laying out. Israel's like, I'll just take that. David expressed an awareness that Goliath had committed a capital crime by blaspheming. He already has said this. According to Leviticus 24.16, any individual guilty of blasphemy receives one kind of punishment, and that's stoning. This is another reason he chose stones. Now, I don't understand, because Goliath doesn't know the law of God. Why would David judge him with the law that he doesn't himself believe in? That's a rhetorical question. We can't possibly judge the world by a law they don't know, can we? This is another reason why David chose a sling and a stone. David, God's choice for the throne, proves himself to be a diligent follower of the Torah. He knows the law of God. He said, you know what? This man is blaspheming God. I don't care what tribe he's from. I don't care whether he knows it or not. He's going to die by stoning. Likewise, David's use of the sling and stone are quite tactical. This is a genius move, right? He comes out with this cudgel in his hand, and the Goliath thinks, oh, you're going to fight me with a stick like I'm a dog? What he doesn't see is what's dangling there in his other hand. Then David, agile and quick, because he doesn't have all that stupid armor, comes running down at him as if he's going to come and attack him with his cudgel, his little wood stick. And Goliath just kind of lops along, gets closer and closer and closer. And man, how easy a shot for David. 
really. Right? You got the, all this armor on. We got this big blank spot right here in your forehead, and you're getting as close to me as possible because you think we're going to go to fisticuffs. David is quite smart. If you ever want to defeat an enemy, I would say imitate this. Stonewall Jackson did that. A large portion of his war doctrine was based on actually what David did in the field of battle. He was quite successful. David is clearly more dynamic. He is clearly wiser. He's, clear, he's better equipped. Here's Goliath. He has to come into close contact. He's got to use this giant 16-pound spear. He's got this huge sword that he never even gets out of the sheath. He's got another dude carrying his, his shield. He can't even carry it himself. It's so big. And here comes little scrappy David. He thinks, ah, this guy's an idiot. And he gets real close and kills him with a rock right in the forehead, the size of a tennis ball, I might add. It'd have to be that big if you're nine feet tall. Goliath was dressed like a servant with his scale armor, and he died like a servant with a crushed head. And then this is the best part. Why didn't David need a sword? Because he used his enemies. He's like, I don't need one. He's got one. So what I'll do, I'll knock him down and take his and finish the job. And this again and again and again. Do you want to defeat Darwinism? Use Darwinism. Do you want to defeat statism? Use statism. This is what I, why are we railing? Right? You want to defeat communism? Use communism. Most people don't really know what communism is. Most people don't really know what Marxism is. Explain it to them. Get out the book written by Marx and read it to them. This is what the people of God ought to do. We are so worried about what we're going to do. Generally speaking, I would say the enemies of of God's people at this point, the weapons that they're carrying around themselves to attack us are all we need to defeat them. Right? Socialist economics. Let's have a conversation about that. Oh, you want to talk about the nihilism of the 20th century? You want to talk about where all this leads? Let's go to Ukraine during the wheat famine where they took all the food out of Ukraine and starved the people there. Do you want that in America? Is that what you want? (laughs) If the people of God just read history, if we just studied philosophy a little more, right? What we do is we watch Netflix and just take in the worldview. Well, why don't we (laughs) strike all that down and go out there and take their sword away from them and chop off their head with it? Do you think most Marxists have any idea who's Stalin? Anyway, I digress. Whatever. We got a statue of Stalin in Seattle, for goodness sake, so we clearly don't know who the man was. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Psalm 115 says, those who worship dead gods become like them. We become like what we worship. Gad, who was the god of Philistia, remember when they took, they took the ark and they put it in Gad... Uh, the god Gad, they put it, the ark in his temple, and what happened? He fell over and his head fell off. Goliath is a worshiper of that god, and what, what, did he, what his end was like his gods. Your end will be like your gods. David knows where true power comes from. Psalm 33, verse 16 through 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 147, verse 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. Even David's swiftness isn't the reason that God loves him. And he's swift. His strength isn't the reason that God loves him, though he is strong. David could boast in all of these things, and he boasts in none of them. 
the thing that he was armed with was the fear of the living God. What matters is not whether you have the best weapons. What matters is not whether you have um, the best philosophy. What matters is not that you have the best everything. What matters is whether you have the living God or not. In fact, your inadequacy in every conceivable way, ladies and gentlemen, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you are inadequate in every conceivable way. May the Lord bless and keep you. We are completely inadequate in every conceivable way. And, and this is exactly what qualifies us to carry around the sword of the living God. This is why we have a spirit. This is why we have a salvation. Because without it, we have nothing else. And at some point, all of us came to realize, apart from him, there is nothing else. So why are we hiding? Why are we cowering? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Ladies and gentlemen, lay down everything else that you have. If it, are you afraid? Are you powerless? Are you completely powerless to do anything about the culture, about the encroachment in every conceivable way? Right? You've, when you go and you, there it is and, you, and there's men coming out of the women's bathroom and you can't even send your daughter in there, do you go home and feel powerless? That's what they want you to feel. You go into Fred Meyer and you're like, I've got to put this mask on again. I go to Costco, I've got to put this mask on again. My wife, she loves it. We put the mask on so we can walk 10 feet to the table, sit down and take it off and then breathe all over the stuff that's sitting there at the table. But goodness me, we made it those 10 feet. Science. Sorry. Do you feel powerless? You're the people of God. How could you possibly feel powerless? We are not facing down our own Goliaths. Okay, you, you, you're not Appalachian State taking on Michigan. When we hear these stories, we want to be the person, right? We want to be David. Man, I'm going to go out there and I'm facing Goliaths and I'm going to just strike them down, and I'm going to show how much I believe in God. You're Israel. You are the ones cowering. You are the ones living fear. You are the ones who are hiding. You are the ones who have forgotten who your God is and who your tribe is. We are not David. We are Israel. We are cowering. We are incapacitated by fear. We are fixated on the size and power of our enemies. We are wallowing in disobedience. Israel sees Goliath, his size, his armor. And what does David see all along? Yahweh. His eyes never leave him. Hapless and helpless Israel, we are more likely to accuse and malign obedient sons like David, just like Eliab did. I know your heart. I know you're just interested in commercial gain. I know that you, right, you're, you're abusing your witness and you're not being nice to people. You jerk. Because we see men like David and we don't understand them. Because we don't understand the age in which we live. Eliab did not get it. And so he, he accused his own brother. We need someone to deliver us. We need saving. We need courage. We need proof that faith overcomes. That God's promises are in fact true. That our enemies and circumstances are not bigger than God. David comes and shows us with defiance and confidence and grit what the life of faith could be. And we see it, and we can't rise to it. 
right? We, we, we are not David's. Now, David was not perfect. David is not Jesus. But if you think you're even equal to David, there is a fundamental problem with the way that you read the Bible. The great saints of old tower above us in their faith and obedience. You're not David. You're Israel. And David comes and shows us our situation. We need a captain. We need someone to go before us. We need someone who is a head-stomping king. We need Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Psalm 37, verse 1 through 6. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Our shepherd, armed merely with a staff, has gone out in the chasm between our armies and Satan's, and he has thrown down and cut off his head. Up, Israel. The enemy is, in fact, dismayed. The enemy is, in fact, routed already. Let us to the battle and follow our captain. Let us hunt down every sin. Let us hunt down every lie, and let us put them to the sword. In our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The battle is the Lord's. If our confidence is fixed on the power of God rather than in any armor uh, or sufficiency of our own, we may be certain the world's utmost might cannot withstand us because they could not withstand Christ. What can the world do to you? What can the world do to you? What are they armed with that he has not already taken out of their hand? Right? Remember this from a few weeks ago? They pulled out their big gun of death and unbelief and pointed in our face and pulled the trigger, and it says acme down the side, so every, the only thing that pops out at us is a bouquet of flowers. And we say, yes, thank you. We'll lay this at the empty tomb. God resists the proud and pours contempt upon those who, who bid defiance to his people, humiliating them by a defeat of the meanest of instruments, right? A rock and a stick. God uses humble tools. You and I. You and I are the rock and stick. <laughs> First John 4.4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you believe this? Do you know the, the Christ who has delivered Israel from Goliath? who has delivered you? Do you need to repent of the wrong kind of knowledge of Christ, knowledge that knows of him but does not know him? Do you trust him? Are you confident in him? Not just in the words of ink about him, but him. Are you confident in him? Do you have knowledge that does not penetrate beyond the head to the heart? 
Are your eyes fixed on him or your circumstances? Him or politics? Him or economics? Him or COVID? Him or that which you fear the most? Him or wayward Israel? Him or the failed leadership of Israel? Him or his kingdom? What do you desire more? A faith well aimed at Christ, eyes fixed on him, a head full of Christ, a heart full of Christ, will overcome all opposition because he has overcome all opposition. In him you discover that you are already, whether fighting lies or sin in the world, victorious because he is victorious. Do you believe it? Psalm 9, verse 10, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Do you seek him still? There are giants in the land. There are, and they are dressed like dragons. And they breathe out fire. But our captain, our king, our lord is a giant slayer. A head-stomping king. Up, Israel, and follow him. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of David. We thank you, Lord, that he put no confidence in his flesh, but that his confidence at all times was in his God. We, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would make us like him, that you would teach us to follow our captain who is victorious, who has overcome the world. May we, Lord God, love your name, love your glory, and may we, Lord, defend you and defend your people. May we arise, Lord God, and chase the Philistines. <laughs> from the river to the ends of the earth, and amen.